Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where we talk about all of that and then some. I wrote the book, Common Sense Pregnancy, which is available wherever you buy your books. I worked the jobs as a labor and delivery nurse. I am the mother of many, and I'm a writer in the women's health, humanitarian, politics, and gender world. So that's me. What's going on, everybody? Are you still reeling from current events, or are you, like me, kind of tucking in with the cooler weather and starting to get that fall feeling? I don't know about you, but I think that when you're feeling stressed about life and the world in general, sometimes the only best thing you can do in the moment is to pull on a warm sweater, pour a hot cup of something, and cozy the hell up. Fall is good for that, right? Books, knitting, coziness, fires. What else? So this week we had International Day of the Girl, and Michelle Obama announced the Obama Foundation's, uh, their launch of the Global Girls Alliance, which is an effort to empower adolescent girls around the world through education so that they can support their families, their communities, and their countries. And it really did my heart so much good to see that. You know, even though Mrs. Obama is not technically in public office, she's still using her talent, skills, and celebrity for the betterment of girls and women. And I love that. Thank you, Mrs. Obama, for providing another opportunity for citizens like myself to be engaged and to get to work on making the world a better place for girls and women. And by extension, the, for the best for the rest of us because you know as we all know who runs the world girls and women go learn more about the girls global alliance and then maybe pitch in on their crowdfunding campaign what else is going on well there's a lot i could talk about but i think instead of rambling on too much this week we'll we'll take a quick break and then i want to get right back to this week's guest so quick break All right, we're back. Now, before we get to this week's guest, um, I want to ask a favor and send out a direct request specifically to women of color who work in the birth world, parenting industry, politics, gender world, you know, the world about the stuff we talk about here on the Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics podcast. And I want to ask you to get in touch with me. I feel like we need to, we really need to include a wider range of perspectives and we need to include more women of color in this conversation we're having about pregnancy, parenting, politics, feminism, and healthcare. And so if you have an idea, an initiative, a product, a book, an organization, a record, a service, you know, what have you, I would like to, you know, hand you the mic and interview you. If you are a woman of color or you know one of color who you think could add something valuable to the podcast, I'd sure like to hear from you because, you know, the issues that negatively impact pregnancy and parenting, we know that it disproportionately impacts women of color. And, but, you know, they're also the ones who have the solutions. The other thing is that we hear so much about the high risks and poor outcomes that women of color face that we tend to really focus on that. We really, we think about it that way. But 
we don't hear enough about, you know, the majority of normal, healthy, positive outcomes and normal families. We're not hearing enough about women, woman-led solutions. And sometimes I think, I don't know if I'm right, but if all we're doing is focusing on the negative angle, then that's what becomes normalized. We think that it's normal for women of color to die in childbirth at four times the rate of white women. I don't, I don't know that most white people in the U.S. really understand what disparity is about. And I think we need our awareness raised quite a lot. I would like some help here from women who know. And um, so email me at jean at jeanfaulkner.com and let's talk about that. Okay, this week's guest is a woman I've spoken with before, but um, not here on the podcast. So I'm really glad to have her with us this week. Shafia Monroe is a renowned midwife, a doula trainer, a motivational speaker, a cultural competency trainer, and she has been birthing change all her life. She's also a Portland transplant like me. So let's get Shafia on the line. Hi, Shafia. It's Jeannie. How are you? Good. Hi, Jenny. I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing okay. I um, okay. you know, read a little bit of your bio, and I mentioned that you're a Portland transplant like me. Right? It's true. Yes. I've been here for a long time now, though. 25 years that I arrived here. I was eight and a half months pregnant, drove in from Massachusetts. What? Five children, a husband furniture and uh, a baby inside about eight, eight and a half months and arrived in uh, Portland, Oregon. I've been here ever since. I, I moved here 25 years ago, too. Wow. Yeah, from Los Angeles. It's a different city okay. than it was, but in many ways, a lot hasn't changed. Yeah. True, true. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, I did, I did read a bit of your bio, but my first question for every guest is... Who are you and what do you do? Wow. I know, right? What do I do? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I say that I am a universal citizen. I'm the daughter of Yvonne and Thomas Monroe, who are my heroes, who were community activists, who really molded me to be who I am today. You know, being being born during the civil rights movement in this country, my parents were really leaders and out there on the front line for for human rights and civil rights justice and people justice. I grew up watching them and then bringing me to these meetings and watching them talk about voting and running community gardens in Boston. And that's when I learned about mortality and got support from my family to, you know, to continue being an activist. So I, I'm that person. I now say that the that the Black Green Midwives channel through me. I feel like I'm representing their work at this point in my life. I am a mature woman. I don't give my age, but I'll say my my oldest is 42 years old, so I'm very much uh, a grandma and an elder, and so I feel at this point that their energy is coming through me. And uh, I am a person who wants to see universal peace. I, I don't want to see any part of the world where children are suffering, you know, where families are suffering, where pregnant women are suffering. So I spend a lot of time thinking about what I can do to make a difference. And so that's what I spend a lot of my time doing, thinking about it and then acting on it. 
and I'm kind of jumping ahead. We talked about birthing change. That's that's the birthing change for me. I I get an idea and I grow it, and that birth into action, and it becomes a reality. And in between that, I fish and I I garden and I walk and I talk to my children and feed people and just kind of hang out with my husband and working on a book. And I'm a Gemini, so. My dad said there's three of me, but at the most, there's certainly two of me. So I stay pretty busy. <laughs> I raised a Gemini. I'm familiar. <laughs> okay. So you understand? Yes. <laughs> Air yes. sign all over the place. Yeah, yeah, all over the place. So tell me a little bit about your career path. How how'd you get into the birth world? Oh, that's, that's a now a 40-year story. Yeah. Um, actually, probably 43. And I remember it vividly. And I've shared it a lot, but, you know, I say that I didn't get into it. I say that the birth work got into me. I had never heard about midwifery or, you know, birth justice or reproductive justice, none of that. I was living my life as a young child, playing with animals and dolls. I was having a good time. And then, as I mentioned, being born to the civil rights movement and watching my parents and my family as a whole and my community really you know, the act around social justice issues, civil rights issues, I was conscious of injustices. And then when I was reading uh, at some point in my life, 16, 15, reading about uh, birth, or I think I heard that Infomortality was, was doing something in our community, Roxbury, Mass. I read, and when I was reading, I read about black midwives. I had never heard about midwifery anyway, never mind black midwives. And so when I read about them in the South and what they did, you know, helping people, um, being leaders, being in the communities and being loved and strong and knew all about herbs and mystical and spiritual. I thought, oh, I, I want to be like them. And so I began my path of learning to become what literacy was. And actually it was very, uh, very good timing for me because that was the exact same time that the home birth movement has, has was making a comeback um, in the United States, you know, Ida Mae Gaskett and many other yeah. well-known people came to the forefront to push it. Uh, and at the same time, there were also uh, black midwives themselves, Ayana Aday being one, and Saran Henderson, uh, way back as well, was running small groups of midwives and rebirthing that concept in their community. And we all met each other somehow. Someone put us in touch, and so we created the the Black Midwives Movement simultaneously, but then also met with I and many, many, and many others, and, you know, and worked nasty when needed, but still kept the uh, the different needs within our communities at the forefront of our work. So I created, uh, being in Roxbury, I created a nonprofit called the Traditional Childbearing Group. It was the first, and that was like 1979, I believe, or 1977. And that is the first, actually the first um, African-American nonprofit in the nation. There's many groups, but, but none were nonprofit. We actually, you know, uh, registered our names, you know, it, became a nonprofit entity. Wait, wait a second. It was the first African-American nonprofit? For home births. Got it, got it. Okay, got it, got yes. it. Got it. Oh, yeah, there's many. Urban okay. yeah, but there's not ever that. There was a nonprofit for home births and okay. free specifically for the black community. Got we it. created that. And so during that time, I worked with midwives from Uganda, from Ghana, from Pakistan, and then three midwives from Alabama. And that's how we got the nonprofit off the ground. And 
one of the midwives we worked together for a long time, Majid Ahmadadim, we actually went to Roxbury, using home birth as a platform for black women's empowerment of, of uh, self-determination. And we did a lot of home births during that time. And a lot of black women and men came to, to the forefront to support our work. And we trained a lot of midwives as well. And we've been at midwifery school and we graduated some midwives then. And it was good times back then. Yeah, those, that was a good time in the birth world. There was a it lot. was, you know? Yeah, yeah. Just all over the People place. got along. Yeah. yeah. And people were really working really hard towards good outcomes. There were, you know, yes. it was more focused on healthy outcomes for mothers and less about, you know, the, the other things that take up so much of providers' attention now, you know? Exactly. You know, having to have medical records and, you know, even the midwives are tired that they can't practice what they want to. Things, mm-hmm. things are changing. There's more and more restrictions. So we would yeah. just, you know, be free. And I think I had a piece of paper. <laughs> what time the baby was born? You know, yeah. a couple of sheets. But not like I went to a birth recently. Uh, it's been a year to help a mom. She has midwives helping her and I served as her as her doula. And I was like, wow, I don't. I don't envy this. They just—they were typing for hours, oh, like the yeah. whole day, just on, yep. just on intake. Like get yeah. the food ready, get the tea and coffee out, and it's just like you know. Yeah. It's, I mean, I understand, but it's, it's just a lot. So, but it is yeah. what it is. It's twenty-first century, and so uh, I, I appreciate that I was born during that era. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's like this. It's like I tell people. I know what it's like to catch babies in my bare hands. I mean, that's the era I grew up. You'd have to put gloves on. You, yeah. you caught the baby and you wash it. It was just beautiful. And now, you know, the gloves are great, but you don't feel that human contact. It's right. so different. Yeah. It's yeah. so different. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So part of your bio mentions that you are a cultural competent, it's hard to say, it, cultural competency trainer. And I'm wondering Correct. if you could explain what that means to our listeners. I can explain that. It's interesting. I just left speaking for the AABC 12th Annual Birth Institute Conference in in Dallas, and their title was Cultural Inclusivity, Where We All Grow and Thrive. And so I mentioned that because now we are aware that cultural competency is something that is a behavior and a thought process and an action that when we're able to implement it, it can have a positive outcome in births, how people learn in school, how we live in a community as one in a peaceful and respectful way. And cultural competency actually was discovered and talked about in 1968, but it really did not make a presence in 2007 where more literature started studying what cultural competency is. So cultural competency itself means that a provider, and also cultural competency is really for the medical world, so it's not really for the educational world or for the construction management, you know, for real estate agents, though we should be, but this cultural competency concept really came out of the health industry, or looking at health inequities and health disparities. So for healthcare providers who are culturally competent, they're able to effectively deliver healthcare services that meet the social, the cultural, and linguistic needs of their patients or clients. In a manner that preserves their dignity, that of their family, their community, but it also includes the issue of power and privilege, oppression, and systemic racism is also tied to that. And so, what I do is uh, 
I provide a six-hour training, and my training is called Cultural, Cultural Competency, Working with Diverse Population and Maternal Child Health. So my cultural competency is for healthcare providers who work in maternity care. So nurses, doulas, OBs, labor delivery nurses, IBCLCs, um, childbirth educators, birth justice workers, reproductive rights workers. So that, that's the focus. And we have a six-hour workshop where they learn the five competencies and, and how to implement them in their practice and then how to measure their outcomes. So now that you're doing the competencies, are you seeing a difference in how you interact with your clients? Are you seeing better birth outcome? Especially now when we really see mature mortality for women of color, you know, after, after skyrocketing and such a huge gap uh, between white American women and, and women of color. And even though with white American women, I always want to include and even mortality in the white community, their rates are higher when you look outside of America and look at parts of North uh, Europe and other developing countries where their mature mortality rates are going down. Mm-hmm. But when you measure around race and culture in this country, you still see that people of color are doing, uh, they're not doing well with infant mortality still and mature mortality or breastfeeding rates. So by, by providing cultural competency training, I help healthcare providers to have self-awareness of just to look within themselves and see how do they see themselves, how are they raised, what's important to them, where do their, their uh, orientations come from, and we all have them, whether it's family, school, faith, community, education, that, that makes it difficult to create that bridge of working with people who are different than them, color, gay, lesbian, immigrants, you know, refugees, you know, gay, lesbian, whatever that category may be, we could, we could break it down and say, you know, physically able. Uh, there's a lot of categories that we can look at and they all do count, but the ones that we look at right now the most is the gap between the, the, the racial divide. I mean, I've, you know, I've been a midwife since, um, like I said, for close to 40, 42 years, and I've worked with all different types of families, but also types of providers as well. And I really saw recently, the last 10 years, last 15 years, I really saw was seeing healthcare providers, you know, wanting to be able to um, cross over to relate to their clientele who may be of a different country or like I said, different race, and just not able to to um, to make the crossover. And so what I see is a frustrated healthcare provider and a, and a patient who's not getting quality care who's also frustrated. So I wanted to create this program, which I created, I think now like 2011, where I'm able to help the healthcare providers uh, bridge that gap by going over. The, I use the uh, Columbia University's responsive care, cultural competency method, along with several other methods. And so it's been working out well. Um, we do the training, uh, we interact, we do case case scenarios, we do role playing, we do self we do uh, self assessment charts, we identify two companies that we want to implement into our practice, how we're gonna do it, how do we measure it, and and yeah. Right. That's, that's a couple of trainer. Yes. All right. I love that. I love that you're providing this service and training because it's. Thank you. You know, coming from the labor and delivery nurse perspective, which was a, a role I filled for a long, long time. You know, you walk into your patient room, you know, you start your shift and you, you have no idea who you're going to be taking care of. And right. our job 
is to find a way to bridge the gap between ourselves and that woman and her family. It, you know, so that we can have a really intense, intimate day together. You know, the day you're going to have right. a baby. And we right. are coming at it from such different perspectives. And I think that right. probably most people, you know, come to the delivery room with really, really positive intentions. But right. we're also coming to it from really different perspectives, really different levels of privilege, you know. And, right. we, and we don't know what we don't know. So it's right. you're providing an important service. <clears throat> thank you, thank you. Yeah. You know, and, and even you know, even some of the data showing that we've mentioned people come there with good intentions and we want to bridge the gap, but like you said, we don't know what we don't know, and that's where the where the implicit bias comes in. You don't know that when you see a certain group of person that you uh, draw back mm -hmm. and certain assumptions come because we're looking at why are black women dying in childbirth and they told the doctor I have a headache my legs are swollen, mm -hmm. you know, um, I'm coughing blood, and they just ignore them and literally sell them back home, you know, or I feel like my baby's coming out, and, you know, can you check me, and, and, this, and they're not being heard, so because of the bias that, oh, certain groups of people, black women, they can endure pain, you know, Mexicans or Hispanic, well, first, everyone's Mexican, of course, they're not, they're right. Ecuadorian, and they're Cuban, so, you know, yeah. it's a Mexican, and, you know, let's bring them tacos, they don't eat tacos, they eat beans and rice, they're from Puerto Rico, you know, yeah. so, uh, we don't know what we know, and so, that's implicit bias, and so, but I have to say, it's, it's been a, 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 a slow turn, though it's all over the place, but cultural competency in my state, you know, Oregon, we passed the bill, Oregon, uh, HB 2611, which is a cultural competency bill that the Oregon Health Authority has put in place where licensed providers, they, they couldn't make them, but strongly are encouraged to, um, to take it. And then I tell the, 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 the participants when I teach the class, it's an ethical issue. We're here because it's the right thing to do, but also it's a business issue. We see the demographics is changing. It's part of my class I'm giving. The demographics are changing. By 2040, 2050, 2060, it's going to be, you know, majority people of color of different shades, multiple, they said multiracial, which is really growing. People are intermarrying now. So, you know, people are mixed with so many different races that they look very different, brown skin, different eyes, different hair textures. And so we can't meet the growing uh, change. We're not going to keep, we're not going to be able to keep in business because this is, this is who we have to serve. And not only do we just have to serve, how do we how do we diversify our workforce? And that's the other piece I talk about. How do we make sure that we have enough people in place to do the work who represent the community? Because that makes my business advantageous. That I can say, hey, I have all these different people in my on my team who represent different walks of life. That's going to make my clients feel excited. Wow, this is a really diverse, great place to come to where I see. Uh, a trend of acceptance and, and choices. And so I try to give from that perspective as well, but I've been having fun doing it. So I, I feel like I want to give listeners, I want to step back just a couple of steps because, sure. you know, a lot of my listeners have heard us talk on this podcast um, quite a lot about how African-American mothers suffer poor maternal health outcomes as compared to, um, white women, including death and disability, and it's it, it's at astounding rates, um, higher than yeah. white populations, and 
it's across you know all demographics it's not just women who are living in you know with low income or in certain areas right. it's across all demographics right and so yeah. for some of my listeners this is going to be brand new information you know maybe they've heard that african american women are dying at four times the rate of white women in america but maybe they don't really understand what that's about and i'm wondering if you could give just a quick quick primer about you know what why is that and how are racism and cultural incompetency related to those statistics it's a lot i know it's a lot <laughs> <laughs> well i'm just thinking you know when i when i talk about the story when i when i did a presentation the day again about cultural inclusivity i was saying i had to remember cultural inclusivity as a young child a young girl and what i remember instead was cultural exclusivity Mm -hmm. I remember that you couldn't sit, you couldn't sit at the counter uh, in the South or even the North of that matter or the Midwest. You couldn't go to hospital and get quality care. You couldn't go to school you wanted. You couldn't drink the, from the water fountain. So it really starts there. Mm -hmm. It starts with enslavement of capturing the people, of free people, and never giving them full citizenship in this country. Though we say that we do, we see it come out with the high maternal mortality rate, the high mortality rate the high rate of young boys being unarmed, shot in the back 15 and 17 times. We see where black women, Latino women are being tased, Native American being shot while they're pregnant, uh, things that, these type of things, the, the, the breastfeeding rates when I call the hospital and I say I have a mom who's breastfeeding and checking her on the second time, the second day, she still hasn't seen an IBCLC yet. And then I hear from the nurses, well, she off the record, but if someone's black, we just assume that they're not going to breastfeed anyway, so we don't we don't put a lot of time on them. Mm -hmm. So these are the kind of things that the implicit or the conscious bias that perceptions of who is worthy of care. So you're a black woman and you go to your care and you're not considered that you know what you're talking about or you're not considered a value. Um, assumptions are made about you that you automatically you know, or a bad mother, you're automatically single, you're automatically, you know, probably taking drugs, all these negative things when it comes down to providing the care, the commitment's just not there. It's not there. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't taught in medical school. You know, you're taught in medical school that, you know, black women in colleges are at high risk, there's going to be infection, you know, they complain a lot. Uh, they did studies that with doctors um, who said they don't have any uh, what's work called? They don't have any bias towards black people, but when they had black male patients, they had consecutive eye blinking, which is means you're not comfortable. So they constantly blinked, they looked away, and they folded their arms, and they used a lot of "you need to" and not "I want you to come back for a blood pressure check." Mm. So I could go on and on. So some of the reasons of why black women have a high mature mentality right right now. It's basically neglect, to be honest. I know it seems that easy, but it is because what we're finding up in California, they have been able to uh, improve their maternal mortality rates um, for all of their patients, particularly also black women who are suffering, by teaching their uh, nurses how to respond and their doctors to blood loss. So some of the major reasons has been uh, blood loss, hemorrhaging, mm -hmm. and uh, undiagnosed and untreated hypertension you know, having preclaims to high, high blood pressure pregnancy-wise or postpartum. And again, if you look at some of the literature, CNN, um, what's it called, Deadly Dead Delivery, mm -hmm. I yeah, yeah. that company, yeah. and so many others, 
there's just so many stories of um, of this issue happening and where the mothers who live, including Serena Williams, yeah. you know, yeah. not being listened to, totally being ignored, just walking away, being dismissed. So people died. She was able to fight for herself and say, hey, I said I won this a long time ago. Thank God that they listened this time, or she would not be here today. Yeah. So it just comes to, um, you know, the, 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 the lack of cultural competency and the uh, systemic racism. Really, it is racism. That particular race doesn't deserve to get quality care and is showing in the numbers. And how do we fix it by having these kind of honest conversations, asking the federal government and aim to look at hospitals to see what they're doing, Mm-hmm. create laws that have them put down the causes of death, yeah. going back to these hospitals, yeah, and investigating why it happened in the first place, um, mandating things that you have to have certain amounts of blood in your hospital, measure the blood, don't try to eyeball it. And the main thing is, is, is listen to women, trust black women. That's yeah. the, uh, the model. I'm part of the Black Midwives, I'm sorry, I'm part of the Black Mother Meta Alliance, a national movement of a coalition of black women physicians, midwives, doulas, public health professionals, educators, and we have been doing the research now for a long time, and this is what we come out in the end. You know, trust black women. Like we say, trust women in birth. The woman says she's going to have her baby. She says she needs the push. She says she doesn't need the push. She's saying, I want to go to the hospital. There's something wrong. We listen to them mm-hmm. so we, for middle-class white women. So we're saying the same thing for black women. Listen to black women. They say if there's something wrong, believe them, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and take the time to investigate. And these are people who are insured. Yeah. The last person we got was from Oregon. She had, she had two PhDs. She worked the CDC. Mm-hmm. She worked in public health, highly educated. These are also kept going back and forth, saying that uh, she has swelled legs, she had headaches, and she died from a stroke. She died from uh, cardiovascular problems. So, yeah, I was going to add something that I can't remember what it was. So that's the issue of maternal mortality, and people should really look it up and and educate themselves and see how how serious it is. One of the things, um, you mentioned California as, um, excuse me, as a model of, improving care for women across the board. And <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm a little bit hoarse today. That's okay, oh, no problem. Um, one of the things that they did that is just such a, it, it's been a, a hard-won um, victory is that they've implemented mandatory reporting on every maternal death. And, you you know, right. listeners often are surprised at the fact that most states don't require that a maternal death be investigated to look at it from all different perspectives to figure out why did this woman die and what can we do to prevent it. But in states that implement mandatory maternal mortality reporting, they look at their, their statistics and their data. And this is what takes it from being, you know, like an individual hospital that says, we don't have a racism problem here to looking at the entire region, entire city, region, state, and saying, oh, look at the data. We sure do. Mm -hmm. We sure do. And that's something that California specifically gets really big kudos for because um, I don't know if they were the first to look at that, but they sure looked hard, didn't they? They looked at it. They did. Yeah. And and they made a difference. And I also want to give... Uh, recognition to Anime Gaskin because Anime Gaskin came to my 
Black and Western Hills concert in Arizona in like 2004. Mm-hmm. And she brought the quilt. She brought the material childhood quilt that no one was talking about. This mm-hmm. big quilt. And you've seen it, right? Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it in person. I say, I've seen pictures of it. I have. I wish. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well she, well, she actually brought it. And so, you know, back then, 2004, no one was even, and she talked about the number of Black women dying and had their stories in the quilt form. So, you know, the conversation has been going for a long time, obviously, since 2004 yeah. at the minimum. And so now it's finally, you know, years later, 12 years later, let me see, it was 12 from 2004. What is that? Six, 15 years later, it's finally, uh, you know, has finally made the press. I know yeah. we lost, I'm, I'm told, 100 black women died in Atlanta the last year. You know, 95 um, in Mississippi, you know, majority black, but also several white American women and also Asian, you know, and also uh, other races too. But the highest number is african-american women yeah yeah. you know over over every group yeah so yeah and you can't deny the facts and i think that no we can't as individual providers you know you you can't see the forest through the trees until you're looking at until you're looking at the something like you know cnn's deadly delivery or something like stark statistics for people to really see that this is a very significant problem and it's a global right. problem. It's a global problem. It is. Yeah. But the issue is, it's a global problem for other countries who are considered, you know, um, low resource, if you want to use that term. Mm-hmm. But the so-called developing countries, which, of course, uh, including Cuba, mm-hmm. their maternal mortality rates are decreasing. I know. And only the United States rate is going up for all races. So I think... You know, all families, husbands, grandmothers, grandfathers, partners, wives, the whole bit. People need to say, this could be my daughter, you know, this could be my daughter-in-law, my niece, my grandmother, any, any, at any point. We need to all just kind of rally around this as, you know, if you don't have a mother, there's no one to raise a baby. If you don't have a mother, you can't even have a baby. Right. And so th- that's the first piece is, is, is to honor the mother, you know, beyond Mother's Day. Yeah, yeah. You know, and um, I... I've done quite a lot of work with CARE, the humanitarian organization, over the years. And one of the first um, things that I did with them was I was able to travel to Peru, where they had implemented programs to reduce maternal mortality rate among um, ac- across the entire you know, country, but um, specifically among indigenous women. Um, and they reduced mm-hmm. it across the country 75% in under five years. And largely it was because of cultural competency, listening to wow. women about mm-hmm. simple cultural changes like um, right. calling them by name instead of bed number, um, changing right. decor so that it was more welcoming and less frightening, um, allowing... Right allowing introduction of traditional um, herbs and remedies. You know, simple, simple. Right, right, right. It's not hard. It's not hard. It just needs to be done. And I think that a lot of the resistance, I think that, I don't know if this is right, but, but let me put it out there, that a lot of the resistance is that the people who are providing the care don't understand or recognize how important culture is if it's not their culture right right well you know and even with that so we talk about culture i have to bring it back to race because we see the bosnians are here 
So they're from Europe. They, they look like white Americans, if you didn't really know deeply, or the Russians. Mm-hmm. And we're not hearing about them having poor outcomes. They're having large families, mm-hmm. um, and they seem to, from what I know, I know they have some internal health problems. I, try, I always ask about them and work, but what about, what's going on about the Bosnians and the Russians? Because, you know, we talk about immigrants, we never hear about them. They're not including that conversation. We hear about Haitians, you know, the Latina population, maybe Ava. We never hear about the European immigrants coming into this country. And I don't see them having a poor birth outcome. So, and they have a different culture, but they also look like the doctor. They look like the white doctor or the white nurse. So though they don't say they're white American, you know, white Americans say, well, at some point in time, I know I'm, I'm from that part of the world. And so it does go down still to a color and to a race. You know, it's, it's yeah. deeper than culture. You know, it has to do with power and privilege and how this country was built. It was built on a certain group, black people, not even being people here, and for a long time could not even access a hospital, and doctors didn't want to touch black people. And in some parts of the South, they still don't want to have black patients. I mean, thank God it's, it's a little bit better, but the way the, the countries go, I'm not sure. And so I think we're going to have yeah, to, like I'm I said, we're going sure. to have to have the we're going to have to have the government though insist on um, to, to really what's the word called enforce human rights, enforce civil rights, you know, a lot of the hospitals, I mean, the medical schools and midwifery schools and doula programs, particularly in our state, are pushing cultural competency. And what I like about cultural competency in Oregon, they say it should be tied to privilege and oppression. A lot of times you see, oh, it's just about culture, but there is more, it's a little bit more than just culture. It does have to do with oppression and, and privilege. That does go with it. And, uh, and the studies, again, that show a lot of health providers have done, you know, they said they wouldn't, if they give them a survey, would you be friends with a black person? No. They think black people are more um, more aggressive. They want more pain meds. These are all myths. But if you're learning that in, the, in your doctor culture, your medical culture, that's the culture. So that medical culture is being, you know, sublimation is being talked about. It's in the atmosphere. When I got in medical school, this is what I think. Well, I can't trust the They're going to abuse drugs. So they're not really in pain. But I, I kind of heard that they do this. It's how they get drugs. Because yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to respond, you know, or, you know, they say Latina women, you know, they're always hysterical. They're not screaming. They're just screaming. No, they're assuming that something's wrong. This oh, they're just so loud. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's we'll true. Write it off. It's true. These are the yeah. conversations you hear in the back, in the back room. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You hear right. this. Yeah. Well, I thank that it, validation. Yeah. I heard it more in Los Angeles, surprisingly, than I did in, in Oregon. Um, mm-hmm. Just blatant disrespect. I, but. Right. Yeah, I was pretty lucky to work in a pretty good system. I, you know, I was going to ask you uh, if, you know, about politically being politically active and how you connect U.S. politics with birth politics, and then you said something like things are getting better, but then we look at statistics in like Mississippi and you know other states in the Deep South where things are getting worse, and True. they're a big part of the problem is the lack of quality health care, you know, probably very specifically for African-American women, but, you know, for all women that are living in those areas. And we're not seeing an an administration that is real excited to pour lots of resources into women's health of any, you know, race. But maybe, right, right, right. maybe looking at the specific administration that we're looking at right now, maybe specifically for women of color. 
you know? That's it. And I, and I want to say families of color. I always want people to understand you can't separate the woman from a family. If my son's being shot and if my husband can't get the right kind of uh, hypertension to leave me a, a widower or a widow, yeah. and, you know, and I know in this country we kind of put things like in categories, but in terms of cultural competency for many communities, it's the whole family as a unit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so I, I, I've been putting that out there more that we want to see not just black and gray health. We want, we want to see the black community uh, thrive and grow right. because that's how, it sh- that's how it should be. So, yes, definitely I'm involved in politics. I'm telling all of my followers on social media to please register to vote. If you're not, I'm telling doulas it's a great time to make a home visit, to talk to your families about why they should vote because I listen to you, have a relationship. Mm-hmm. I bring up the idea of how Alabama, you know, 84% black men, 92% black women created the, the movement in Alabama and made that vote happen. And that people and, and women have, um, we have influence. You know, mothers can tell their sons and daughters and remind their husbands. So definitely uh, politics is very much of what we're going to see around birth centers being implemented, seeing uh you know, uh, uh, even the bill that we passed in Oregon, you know, HB 3311, that's another bill now, but the legislative concept to investigate use of doulas for women who are on Medicaid or couldn't get services. So that was political. Uh, the fact that we can now breastfeed publicly, that was political. So the vote, voting, it, it, it's, it's not just our president, it's for those everyday things that make our life easier. So I definitely talk about that. I'm definitely involved in a lot of national, local, political uh, organizations that are promoting better human rights health, and of course, you know, uh, birth, birth work, birth, birth health, you know, looking at doulas being paid for postpartum care, extending the maternity leave with pay, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. for, for women, those things that can help reduce, uh, increase breastfeeding rates. Women have to go back to work. They can't breastfeed. You, you, you know, you, you say there's a, a a place to pump at your place of employment. And that, that was also politically won by the vote. Yeah, I come from a voting family. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I promote that. Yeah. Well, Shavia, you and I only have a few more moments together, but I want to make sure that we cover a couple of other things. Um, I, I want you to, I, I'd like to know what projects you're currently working on and what else you want listeners to know about your work in the world. Okay. Well, um, I left my nonprofit, the International Center for Social and Child, in 2016, opened up my company, Sheffield Consulting. I still do doula trainings. Uh, it's called the SMC Full Circle Doula Training. It's an African-centered training that really is built on the legacy of the 20th century African midwife because she was that person who promoted voting and she was a pillar. So, I'm excited that we are now getting ready to train the trainers. I have seven women who will become trainers for me so we can build capacity uh, of, getting, of diversifying the workforce and creating cultural competency by having more people who are culturally competent that they can add value to the, to the profession of doula work. And then I just formed uh, last year, it's called Mama, Midwives, Others, Mothers, uh, Midwives, Others, and Mothers Alliance Against Police Violence. And that's because there was a shooting last year in Seattle 
of a black woman being shot 17 times. She was pregnant, but I've three children. Mm-hmm. I've, and I've heard about women being killed, you know, being beat up while pregnant over the years and have always wanted to do something. But that one was the tipping, the tipping point for me, so I had to do something. And that, because I was already disturbed when I heard about the black woman who drove to the White House um, I don't know if you remember that. But she I drove into the gate. Oh my God, that was and heartbreaking. They, right, they killed her with the baby in the back of her car. So obviously yeah. she was having some kind of postpartum psychosis. Yeah. And I read about the tasing of the Latino woman in New York, and I read about the shooting of the Native woman on the uh, reservation. And I just stopped the speech. I said, okay, we we need to we need to pull midwives together. You know, midwives are supposed to be the the keepers of of, of birth and the, the protector of women and all things that we say we are, but against maternal mortality, and this is also a form. So we have been meeting and doing visuals, and we're about to um, have a big event here in Portland. A lot of support. Our Facebook is Join Mama. You can find it that way, or you can just type in Midwives Others Mothers Alliance, and we just kind of, anyone around the country can post information. Of, right now it's awareness. If something happened in the state where a pregnant woman was killed or beat up or handcuffed, uh, any of those things around violence, particularly around the police force, but using police force because they are our, our civil servants. We're not looking at domestic violence just yet. Uh, we've had uh, TriMet, you know, um, campus police. We've had transportation police uh, attacking pregnant women, kicking them in the stomach. So we want to bring attention to this. That's been my big piece on, on that. And then um, I'm forming a young black girls beauty group, which are girls who are in high school from the, uh, 17 to 19, just to help them to be aware of their bodies to, around preconceptional health, just mm-hmm. making a fun, calling a black girls beauty group. It's really about, you know, nutrition, preconceptual health. Uh, how do you plan your family? What type of contraception will you use? Um, we'll probably do a face mask. We'll cook from scratch because so many other women that we see as adults don't know how to cook. Right. I'm talking about educate talking about educated women too, not just you know, I said women have just been all their life. I I went to school, my mother worked two jobs, I've been in school all my life for my second PhD. I never had time to cook. So now I'm pregnant. What do I do? Yeah. So um so we'll be doing that. And uh yeah, I think that's it. Working real hard. My book is done. I wrote my book last year about my life as a as a black midwife, I can't think of a name for it yet, but it's how I got this journey, how I got the nonprofits going, uh, stories about my own seven births, what my goals and beliefs are, a lot about what the black granny, my, what the black granny midwife means to me and how she has mobilized in this work. So I hope to dust it off maybe this fall and finish it and put it out there good. in the uh, atmosphere for readers. Yeah, good. All my children... My, my, I have seven. My last daughter is seven, uh, 20, God, seven, God. My last daughter is 21 yesterday, and she moved a year ago to the East Coast. So it's kind of quiet. Yeah. I don't believe in, I don't believe in children leaving. I didn't want my children to move out. Yeah. I'm not that kind of mom. Like, I can't wait for you to go like, no, never leave. I know. So, um, <laughs> it's heartbreaking, isn't it? It, yeah. it, I'm telling you, I'm surprised how I'm saying I had to go. I think I have grandkids. I'm going to get my grandchildren a lot more having to spend the night and, yeah. you know, I won't take them from their moms here, but keep them more often. Yeah. And I'm taking a pook, a pook along class. I have all this time. It's these a.m. So I'm taking this martial arts class three times a week. That's fun. So, uh, so yeah, and I'm husband with fishing and hanging out. I'm, I'm doing self-care. I think I want to show women and men and young people, you know, how to take care of ourselves in a very – 
fast-paced society. I'm yeah. on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I have two Facebook accounts. I have a, a website. You know, my my company runs four different things. I'm involved with national movements of, you know, Black Lives Matter to Oregon Midwife Council to uh, some other group I just joined on to. So really busy. And so if we don't do self-care this time, then it's not going to be a good thing. So I've been just practicing that and trying to demonstrate that and enjoying that. You are living, capital L. Yeah. Well, I am. Yeah. I am. Well, let me just ask you my last two questions. How would okay. you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. That. Nobody ever told me that. I don't know. That I could do what I want to do, I guess. I mean, I kind of heard it. I think that nobody ever told me that I'd be so wonderful. That's not true. Mother's mother was great too. Let me see. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Nobody ever told me that that there's pain in life at times, that there's challenges. Um, I'm telling you, Janine, I don't know on that one. That's pretty good though. You actually answered it. <laughs> you actually answered the question. Yeah. So my last question yeah. then is where are you in your life in terms of motherhood? Sounds like surrounded by it. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm always, I mean, my, I'm always a mother. You know, yeah. my children, my son's 42. I call my children regularly. My children have been taught to call me every Sunday at the minimum. So I get one call a week, but usually I have about five that call me every day. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm always, you know, in their life. And also, I believe, that, again, from my culture, the African American culture, maybe you, that we, we mother other people's children. We always have historically. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of children and young people who, um, call me all the time and ask questions or come by. And I think the doula work that I'm really proud about is that I've trained close to 2,500 majority women, called majority black women since 2002 as doulas. And a lot of them um, are like daughters and they call me Mama Shafia. Again, that's a traditional name out of Kenya and Africa. You might know that, you know, it's your, your mama, whether you have kids or not, because you're expected to act like a mother because that's just the culture. So that is part of my culture. So I'm always mothering everybody and anybody, whether they ask for it or not. Strangers, people I know, oh, pick up your baby, he's crying. Well, let me help you. So he won't cry. It's okay, you know, I'm just always in people's business in a positive way. <laughs> and I think we need more, I think we need more of that. I'm hearing these children scream right now. And here's the thing, though, Jesus, I want to do a study on. I was just reading about family structure in this country, and I'm reading something that says, when you bring your baby home, you're going to lose sleep. They're going to cry a lot. It's be really hard to say that they have a lot of poopy diapers. You know, at some point, it's better. So I, I had seven children. I'm thinking, like, I don't remember ever feeling that way. And I talked about the other children being jealous. And I've had mothers say to me, I don't know if I can love another person mm-hmm. while they're pregnant. Mm-hmm. So, I'm like, so I'm like, is it just me that never, ever felt with my that would? I never had a question that I would not love all my children equally. I never had a, had a question that... I didn't grow up hearing that, even from all my friends. I have plenty of friends during my head. We all have, you know, four and five, seven, eight, nine kids. And I, it was never a conversation like, oh, wow, I'm exhausted. It was never a conversation, oh, you know, I'm afraid that little Bobby's going to hate this baby. We just didn't think like that. So I'm just wondering, where is this coming so prevalent now? There's so much insecurity around mothering that yeah. parenting is such a horrible thing. Like, nobody wants to do it, and they're apologizing for it. It's something in the air. So no one ever told me that parenting but being a mother would be, would be a hard thing, would be a curse. No one ever told me that. You are so lucky because you know what? Most, many, not many, but many women answer it 
Nobody ever told me that parenting would be this much fun. People don't think oh, good. that way. They don't think that it's going to be fun because it's what you said. They're told your baby's going to cry a lot. They're going to poop a lot. It's going to be really hard. Try not to shake the yeah. baby. But they're not told. <laughs> yeah, but they're not told, yeah, you're going to get tired. But, oh, well, nothing bad ever happened to anybody from that. You're going to be fine. This is going to be great. It's an adventure. You're going to be okay. And you're tired from getting your, 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 your master's, your college degree, and, and painting your, your house that you decided to re, to renovate. I mean, right. so what's the, what's the problem? And again, hard. I think it's cultural. <laughs> I do, I too. I think it's cultural. I do, too. Yeah, I don't hear, I don't hear, I don't hear Chinese saying that. Definitely hear Africans saying that. From yeah. Africa, like, oh, please, I got 13 kids. I think part of it, too, I want to do parenting classes. I think it's how we raise our children. I feel right now in America that our children are almost like objects. We have to worship and do every single thing for them as opposed to, Old school, we said reverence the womb that bore you, but God ever watches over you. So my kids, that's on my wall, by the way, for my faith. And so my children will call and say, as grown-ups, they'll say, my son, Mom, are you happy with me? And I'll say, yes, I am. Because if I'm not, his life will not be blessed. I raised them like that. So they are very astute to my needs. Yeah. Like I get an egg sandwich in the morning when they're cooking. I get a back rub when they walk by. Nice. You know, we love each other. Yeah. We talk. And so they wash clothes when they were seven years old. They do dishes. Do you think they some can of wait. That, it, do you think some of that is the culture of big families? Because, you know, I, I, I'm the youngest of eight <clears throat> children. Okay, lucky. Yeah, I know. <laughs> right. And, and it, it was the same for my family. Everybody pitched in. It was a big family. Exactly. Experience. And then pitched I have... In four children of my own plus a niece who is mine. Right. So, you know, I'm still in the 21st century considered big. I mean, my family, people think five, you got five. That's huge. How I do know you it. do it? I know. And to me, right. it's not like that. It's like, yeah, you just stretch and grow. It's there's plenty. Exactly. Yeah. And we all pitch I, in. I, exactly. And what that does, it teaches how to get along in the world better. Yeah. You know, my daughter goes to college. She goes, Mom, thank God how you raised your people here. They can't cook. They're not washing their clothes. I mean, basic hygiene. Yeah. And then that's going to be someone's husband or wife or partner later in life. Right. So I, I think that somehow it's some kind of confusion that you can't have a life and you have children and you have to do every single thing for them. They don't have to go to every single soccer team. It's not a guarantee they're going to be the most amazing person. They can read books at the library. Yeah. And the whole phone thing, you know, children having phones instead of a book. I still give my children children books. I don't I don't give them a another uh what do you call it? Technological device. And what the study's saying now, it's messing up their eyes, it's drying their eyes out, it's uh they don't look up anymore, they're losing words, they don't know how to socialize, so they don't know why how to perpetuate friends, that? they don't know how to be bored. Exactly. Yeah. Right. More depression about... because you're on Yeah. I worry about the boredom factor. I mean, I, I know that for me, when I am bored, that's when the creative energy has a chance to bubble up. And right. if we're keeping our kids constantly occupied, even in the down times, we just hand them a screen. Right. What are we doing to them? Exactly. We're killing their creativity and their ability to, to, uh, to be okay. And to imagine. You know, so... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And to, you know, learn to like themselves and think about how great they are, how many things they're capable of doing without having to have a screen. So mm -hmm. I, know, I know it's different. You know, I look at the, I don't know where the children are, like in my neighborhood, there's not that many children anymore. And people are <laughs> facing their children and they're delaying. Uh, I think I read in the New York Times, this is the lowest ever of 
having children in America, I mean, the number is getting smaller and smaller. So having to drive to find a play group, that's a job. I wouldn't yeah. want to have to get in a car and go find a play group. I'd rather be able to help my kids like, like I did. Go outside and there's 50 kids. You know, you, you know, 10 of those moms, they live and think like you. It's a safe place. Go play. But mm-hmm. now it's not safe. So we, have to, you know, we have to organize where to bring our children, where to, where to be with them. I have to be there while they're there. So, so it does take, because it is another type of, uh, uh, I'll say, inconvenience or stressor, because your kid just can't go out and come neighborhoods play on their own, right. and there's no kids out there. So that does make a little bit different, which is why you have eight kids, and they all can play together, and they don't have to go out at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I would say to my mom, I need friends. My mom said, you don't, you don't need friends. you got three sisters. Get back and everyone play. Yeah, right. That's, we grew right. up. That is your friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think my mom said the same thing. Yeah. Right, yeah. right, right. Well, Shafia, so. I have really enjoyed talking to you, and I think that you and I can have many conversations down the road. If that's good with you. Yes, yes, we do want to. We can talk about parenting from the what the seventies, the sixties, the eighties. Yes, and please. with the parent. And listen, women ask me like, like, how do you do it? And I give them ideas like, thank you. Get a crock pot. Tell your child no. They don't have to. You can tell them no. They'll be okay. Yeah. You know, ask them to do this. Talk to your mate. Mm-hmm. Before you come home, eat at your favorite restaurant and then come home. That's what I do. And then <laughs> <laughs> come home full. <laughs> that's a, that's so a strategy. Anyway. That's a strategy. Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I always stop up and eat real quick someplace nice by myself. One is cheaper. You can take your time. Yeah. And it's just, it's just you know, we still need that time, that yeah. private time. It's okay. We need transition time, too. Yeah. 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 So. Well, then you got to go. Yeah, thank you so much for hopping on the line with us today. I really appreciate it. And we'll talk again. Yes, thanks so much. And congratulations on keeping the public aware of what's happened in the country. Thank you so much. And in the world. Well, back at you. Back at you. Yeah. All right. We'll talk again. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Our guest today was Shafia Monroe, and you can learn more about Shafia at shafiamonroe.com. You can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. Email me at jean at jeanfaulkner. And tweet me at jeanfaulkner. Find us over on Instagram, Common Sense Pregnancy. Let me know if there's something you want me to cover. And of course, if you're interested in sponsoring Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, we would love to hear from you. You can find a link for advertising opportunities over on my website. And go buy the book, will ya? Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. We're also part of the Parents on Demand Network, where you can find all kinds of parenting podcasts all in one spot. That's P-O-D, Parents on Demand Network. That's it for this week. Talk again next week. Bye-bye.